You're listening to Lit After Dark, the podcast where three English teachers nerd out while they analyze Netflix's dark. This week, we're looking at Season 1, Episode 6, Sic Mundus Creatus Est. Ulrich returns to the past as he reinvestigates the disappearance of his brother Mads, who he seems to have found by the end of the episode. Jonas explores the cave with his new gear and crawls through two doors that say Sic Mundus Creatus Est with the Triketra symbol. He has traveled to 1986. And Katarina learns of Ulrich's affair with Hannah and beats Regina up after Martha's heartbreaking performance as Ariadne. All that plus our analytical takes on this episode of Lit After Dark. I think I'm most excited about the fact that apparently we do actually have German listeners. Yes. Welcome. Guten Tag. Or whenever you're whenever you're listening to this. Hello, you're German. You're being listeners. very offensive right now. <laughs> I'm sorry. Send a postcard to litafterdark at gmail.com. Litafterdark pod, sorry. And it's not a postcard, yeah. it would be an email. I know how the world works. Well, you know, we have our podcast out in the world, which means, guys, we have our first five-star rating and review. Wow. So Exciting. I'm going to read that out. I know the person who, which is shocking. I know. <laughs> I know the person who wrote this one. I don't know if she would want her whole name said. So I'm just going to say what it says on the actual review. And she says, A. Peloth. Thank you, A. Peloth. She says, Illuminating. Lit After Dark is just as fun, if not better, than your third period AP English lit class. If you weren't totally obsessed with dark before, you would be after listening to this podcast. Which is very nice. High praise. That, that is very, very nice. nice. My third period English lit class is super lit. It is super fun. So, what a compliment. <laughs> I feel like third period is the best period. <laughs> Are you saying that as a joke or for real? I know, I'm like... No, I'm actually kind of serious. It's a really good part of the day. They're awake enough, but they're not hungry. It's it's nice. Third period yeah. is that's a good point. That's the class they come late to consistently, so That's true. Not a oh. fan. Well that's because we have break. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, welcome to the podcast. If you're just joining us for the first time, you are listening to Tommy's voice right now. And this is Josh. And I am Jen. So welcome. I can't imagine that you don't know this if you're joining us in episode six, but Josh and I have watched the show before, although I'm learning, I don't know about you, Josh, I'm learning more and more about how much I don't remember about this show, every single episode that we watch. Uh, but we are keeping it spoiler free for Jen, who is going into the dark for the very first time. Very exciting. <laughs> Do you experience the same thing, Josh, in terms of forgetting things? Oh, I feel like I have a terrible, terrible memory. And I think that there's only one thing that I remember, maybe two things that I remember from this show that hasn't been revealed yet. And I'm I'm waiting for the day where we get to talk about those things. <laughs> <laughs> uh... Everything else I forget. <laughs> well, let's get into it then, friends. Our first segment is called Lit Takes. This is our biggest chunk of the episode. It's kind of where we go through the entire episode. We talk about notable things that happened, things that made us feel feelings, things that made us excited, things that made us angry, things like that are what we focus on in Lit Takes. It is vaguely chronological, maybe, but mostly it's focused on characters' stories as they go on through the episode. 
So, Josh, you said you wanted to start this one, so get us started. Yeah, the reason why I wanted to start was because there's one character who is not really important in this episode, but she starts out the episode, and that's Charlotte. And she mentions at the very beginning, and we get this dialogue from her discussing, hey, we need to widen our search, knock on every door, just look into the past, go through the records, try to find everything. And I don't know if this was just me, and I'm curious about you guys. It felt to me like she was almost adding a distraction because I feel like she's been so focused on her own husband and was like, hey, what's been going on? Please tell me now. And now it feels like she's going, wait, let's look other other places. Let's look everywhere else besides close to home. And I don't know if you guys felt that way or if that was just an impression that I had that was not something that you felt I'm curious. I was getting mostly desperation from that, especially as the story seems to be getting picked up from outside of Winden and a town like this that seems I get really mixed messages of how big Winden is as a town. It feels very small towny like the town from The Necklace or A Rose for Emily, but at the same time it's also very like it's big enough to have a nuclear power plant. It's big enough to have its own police department that seems less like a sheriff kind of a thing and more like a legit police department. So I, I feel like I'm not exactly sure how large Winden is, but I think that that is a good read on perhaps her motivation for that desperation. But I wouldn't say that I picked up on exactly what you did necessarily. And it may be me just looking into what happens in this episode, but there seems to be a lot of guilt from Peter and Trant, but I'm sure we'll talk about that later. Oh, we're going to talk about that later. <laughs> <laughs> Still want to defend Peter? Are you calling me out? <laughs> I'm calling you out. Um, I The struggle that I have, and even with what you were saying, Josh, is that I feel like now in episode six, this is a show that I need to binge. And I need to see this back to back because when I started this episode, I was really grappling with, wait, what happened at the end of the last episode? What made Charlotte take this serious step, whether it's a distraction or just the desperation of needing to make some progress to have a clue. And then there were even things that I was just trying to remember, like, why does Ulrich's face look like that? I don't remember. So <laughs> I may watch the next episodes a little closer together. I feel like it's appropriate to discuss Regina. First, we open with her. And don't mm-hmm. give me that face. It's the right <laughs> way to say it, according to Josh. And her story is kind of really told slowly throughout the entire episode, but I was so struck by her struggle. Well, let's let's start at the caves, right? Josh, the caves roared again. They did. They roared real loud. And she was there. But was that roar in her mind or was that roar real? I don't know. No. <laughs> Wait, no what? Is it a fictitious roar, a psychological roar? It's a real roar of the caves. Oh, it's got to be real. The kids reacted to it in the first episode. Okay. (laughs) But also, are we talking about when she was tied to a tree? Yeah, that definitely did happen. Okay. Yeah. Because did we know that was Regina at the beginning? We did because of the past and present episode where we saw her with the scars on her wrists. Uh, And her mom called her the limp dish rag. Oh, my gosh. Okay. So I didn't make that connection until the end of the episode. 
which we'll talk about later. <laughs> Talking about the way she was tied to that tree, they like professionally tied her to that tree. Her arms, her wrists were bound so tightly. It was serious, yeah. And so this makes me think like, is there like a legend of the cave that exists? Because that feels like that's what that was, right? That's true. I definitely was thinking about it from the perspective of Ulrich and Katarina wanting to have some sort of revenge for hearing that, hey, she's the one who told on us, who lied about this whole rape situation. Yeah. And so now we're tying you to a tree as a trick. But no, we know that's not the right timeline, though, because Mads disappeared after she was tied to the tree. Because when Auric confronts oh. her in the hotel, she says, the irony of it all is that that wouldn't have even happened if it weren't for you and Katarina. Mads That's wouldn't true. have disappeared because he walked me home because I was always afraid to go home alone because of what you did to me that night. Which I, I guess I'm assuming refers to this. Mm -hmm. But I feel like this sense. event occurred prior to the disappearance of Mads. Hmm. That's a good read on that. I, I definitely misread that as like a revenge plot, but I was reading too much into it. That would help justify it, though, because now I think they're just really terrible people. Oh, well, yeah. And later, <laughs> Ulrich is like, it was a game. We were kids. It's a terrible game. Yes. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it's quite cruel. How do you score points? <laughs> Who wins? <laughs> So that's a that's a significant scene, I think, and tells yeah. us more about like the history of the Wind in Caves. But really her dealing with her learning that she has cancer. I think that whole building of that, again, as it is typical for the show to do, through looks and the music primarily. We watch her read the note, we don't read the note, and the music goes crazy and she gets all shaky. And when Alexander calls, he goes blank and the music goes crazy again. And when they hug, when she comes home and they don't even say anything and she just melts into his arms, so powerful. Side note about Alexander here, I've always kind of had him as one of my top suspects, but in this episode, he showed real emotion, and I cared about that whole situation. And it was it was striking to me because I've always been like, oh, you're such a bad guy. But now I'm like, oh, no, your wife. And it, I felt for him. And I was surprised by how genuine his emotion for her seemed, honestly. Hmm. It did not seem to match up with the character I'd built in my head at that point. Hmm. That's true. The, the show has really built them as almost distant just because of how little we've seen them together if at all question mark i don't remember but there's definitely some real human connection here between them the other big thing about alexander did you guys pick it up maybe we learn that he is alexander tiedemann Yes. Which yes. means that he took her name. I was wondering oh, about this. Oh, I didn't even realize Because that. her mom was Claudia Tiedemann. Yeah. And unless they're like weird married siblings, which I don't think so. <laughs> Sibling relationships are very close Sibling the relationships <laughs> have been very close, yes. <laughs> <laughs> is that, okay, Jen's official prediction, write this down, uh, is they are time-shifted siblings and they <laughs> fell in love later and they don't know it. Oh, man, we haven't seen season three yet, Tommy, so we don't know how accurate I'm that sorry, is. you're right. This is a spoiler-free show. I've got a special <laughs> viewing from Netflix. That's, that's what's happening. I'll make sure to cut that out. <laughs> so I just thought that was an interesting thing. I think that adds to the mysterious nature of Alexander's character for me. Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. And I, part of me thinks that 
because he is the head of the power plant, it almost needs to be associated with that name. And oh, that's a good point. I don't know how accurate that is, but yeah. And I also don't know, maybe this is a German thing. Maybe that's much more common for the husband to take the wife's name. Speaking of things that might be more German, were you guys shocked by the callousness with which he was told that his wife had metastasized cancer yes. over the phone? <laughs> Very much so. Yeah, I was like, oh, by the way, yeah, we found this. Sorry, bye, click. We found this weeks ago. She should have an appointment as soon as possible. (laughs) Hello, Mr. Tiedemann, are you even there? Unbelievable. Okay, so we need to talk about Katerina and her beginning discussion with her kids as the kids are going to school. They're heading to school, and she's like, where are you going? And then Marta just kind of goes off on her. And I love what she says because it's repeated later. She says, you are so blind. Mm. You are so blind. Mikkel is dead and then she gets slapped. That slap is powerful. Oh my gosh. I have never witnessed a slap from a parent to a child and it was, it broke me. It was just so difficult to see. I think this just goes back again to the acting in the show. And Katarina plays this desolate, broken mother so well. The shot of her alone in the swing set was so powerful. And this conversation where Martha's like, are you going to hang up more of these stupid posters? And then later she's like hanging more of them up as if that's going to do anything. Oh man, it is just absolutely devastating. I haven't mentioned this yet, but... This episode, and, and this may be because we're doing this podcast and I'm watching each of these episodes multiple times and I'm getting so incredibly invested, but I was so emotionally involved in this episode. Yeah. There were multiple times where I was close to tears because it, it I felt everything. Mm-hmm. It was so intense. And we'll get to those points later, but this was one of those where I totally understood Katerina's perspective of the desperation of needing to find her son, and also the desperation of the kids to just get back to some idea of normal, just to some semblance of, this is what we do. We go to school. Yeah. Like, let's move on. It was devastating. I so agree. I think that's why I love, I think I love this episode most, though I feel like I say that every time that this episode is now my favorite. You totally say that. (laughs) (laughs) It's, I only have to base it on the previous ones. So you guys have the benefit of a future perspective. But at this point, this is the episode that absolutely made me almost empathize with every single character. And Katarina is obviously on the top of that list, but the moment that moved me is when Martha explodes on her, and I felt with Martha in that moment is this character of Magnus who I've kind of, I don't want to say loathe, but haven't felt any fond feelings for. When he kind of comes and embraces his mother, I was like, ooh, this is going to change the trajectory of how I feel about his character. It felt authentic and it was something that as Katarina figures out later and kind of solidifies in her mind what's going on with her husband, you want to see someone care for her and tend to how she's feeling and validate that in that moment, especially when it's stripped of her. I love what Magnus said when he was like, she didn't mean it like that. Yeah. I so identified with that. And I was like, (laughs) oh, I get what you're saying here. She's like, oh, she said that and that was really rough and she didn't mean it like that. Let me just help. And I felt it when Martha was like, no, I did mean it like that. (laughs) (laughs) This really speaks to us as people. (laughs) 
You are the Martha to my Magnus. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) I have to say this. Her drama teacher said that they were going to put on the play and not cancel it to give people in the town a break from the terrible things going on. And I know that I'm skipping ahead a little bit here, but this play is giving no one a break from anything. (laughs) That's like saying, hey, 2020 is pretty bad, right? Let's take a break and watch Schindler's List to all really relax and calm down. Accurate. (laughs) This is the darkest. Can you imagine if I put that on at our school? (laughs) I kind of love it. I'm... I don't know. <laughs> no, no, no. I don't mean in terms of the quality of the play. I know what you mean. I, I totally get it. I I guess I'm always willing to embrace the darkness and the sadness, even when everything is dark and sad. So, I mean, it's a very Greek idea of like catharsis, right? Of, yeah, of experiencing heavy that. emotion and then releasing because narrative has satisfying endings. Oh, God, mm. I hope this narrative has a satisfying <laughs> ending. <laughs> we will see. As opposed to to real life, of course. Let's keep let's keep talking about Katarina and her discovery. Jen, I feel like you would be the best one to emotionally react to this. Oh, I, I don't know how to read that, but okay. Well, I just <laughs> I feel like you have been the most emotionally in tune with the characters, and this is such an emotional bomb for Katarina to have confirmed. I just want your perspective on it. I guess is what I mean. Oh gosh. Okay. Well. Um... My assumption was leading up to this scene is that she already knew, and this was just a further knife to the back front. I don't know. Both. Yeah, basically. Double knife. (laughs) She is looking at a phone bill, correct? Yeah. 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 And the prominent number on that phone bill is the one that Ulrich has obviously been calling the most over the last month. And when she calls that number to verify what I guess would be what she knew to be true, Hannah answers. Oh, and the fact that Hannah says, Ulrich? Yes. Oh, man. It couldn't be more clear at this point. So that again, though, goes back to Katarina's facial expressions, her just quiet processing of all of her grief coupled together really as it pertains to all her children and her husband's infidelity. And you just feel with her and you start to hate Hannah a little bit more. There's something sinister about Hannah since the last episode. Definitely. And it's growing. I think that she's becoming, I agree with you, one of the least likable, least forgivable characters Mm -hmm. in the story and I I feel gross for saying that. Uh, well, I need to confess that earlier in episodes, I was very antagonistic toward her. And I realized that it was because of knowing things that I, I, I forgot that I forgot about. And I was just like, I don't like her for some reason. <laughs> but it was because of her talking, like lying about this rape and yeah. just inserting herself constantly. Yeah, I didn't remember about the rape. And I certainly didn't remember about, I mean, I'm skipping ahead again and we're going to talk about Ulrich. I feel like I'm doing this a lot. But when he confronts her and she just says you and like says yeah. that she just wants him. Oh, no, I was trying to think of that movie with um, Michael Douglas and um, Glenn Close, Fatal Attraction. That's what it's starting to feel like, that 
I will do anything to be with you. I will kill for you. I don't know. And my sympathy Mm. with Hannah lied in the fact that her husband committed suicide. But I feel like as more unfolds about their marriage, I don't know much, obviously, but it seemed like she wasn't that invested anyway. So it doesn't paint her well in any capacity. Let's leave Katerina for a moment and talk about her children. So Magnus and Martha both go in different paths. Mm-hmm. And we follow Magnus first, who, do you guys think he went to school or is he just kind of wandering? I think he's wandering. <laughs> yeah. He's not a schooler, if you will. Is that a, <laughs> is that a thing? A schooler? Sh- uh, excuse me, schooler. <laughs> <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> schooler. <laughs> Josh, you're being very offensive to our German listeners. I'm sorry. I'm, I apologize. The So he goes to the spot where Francisca had that money that she had and then he goes to this horrific disease bed with <laughs> the used condoms all around it wait let's let's rewind let's rewind a bit because why did he go to the box what was his point what was he did he need money i was so confused by that why was he looking in the box because we know that she and and i'm forgetting her name right now francisca is that her name yes, yes. Francisca leaves money there. Why Why did he go there? I could be so off, but I don't think he was looking for money. I totally think agree. He was looking for a connection to her. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. I think the last episode is when, or maybe it was two episodes ago, that they hooked up. And <laughs> I feel... <laughs> You are absolutely including that version of her saying hooked up. I feel like he really likes her. And it's not just I used her for her body, whatever. I think he has feelings for her. And I think he's looking for some solace right now. Yeah, I think that her kind of dumping on him of her family's problems was very powerful to him and his own struggles within his own family. The fact that she also has struggles within her family and she was so open. I think that vulnerability was really powerful for him. Yes. And I think that from even before that, it was clear that there was, I don't know, something weird between them that wasn't necessarily spoken. Mm -hmm. I think that super solidified it for him. Yeah. So he finds this necklace. With a bird on it. Okay. I... (laughs) Did you guys do this? I went back to previous episodes and I looked at every single shot with Francisca in it and I could not find her wearing it. Oh, I never thought it was hers. I'm glad you did that because I was wondering the same thing. I thought my initial thought was like, is Francisca getting this money from some sort of prostitution? Because we see the disease bed, the venereal disease bed there. <laughs> and we... Thank you for making it more specific. I think it needed that. <laughs> You're welcome. But I was wondering if he if he was like, oh, this is her necklace. But I assumed that you would do the research. So now <laughs> well, we are here and now I know that maybe in a future episode we'll find out who, who the bird necklace. Yeah, I mean, I could be wrong. But he was definitely clearly affected by it as though he knew it was hers, right? That's what I assumed, which is why I did the research. That's so interesting. He also looks at it later when he's in bed with yeah. his sister. And I said that in a very bad way. <laughs> Phrasing. That sounds horrible. Sorry. Um, 
I didn't make that connection at all, and I don't know why, but with the bird necklace, I just went right back to Charlotte, who I know is not connected hmm. to Magnus specifically, but <laughs> <laughs> who knows, right? We have found that there are new connections in this episode that we did not understand earlier, yeah, and we'll true. talk about that later, but yes. man, who knows who is connected? True, true, true. Who knows, indeed. But I need to say this, and I and we have been... There's been inklings of this, but I had such strong feelings about Magnus in this episode, and we need to discuss this. He, I, I, I don't know what this is about me as a middle brother and <laughs> as a, a member of a. Man. <laughs> well, also that, <laughs> but I just saw him intervening and trying to help. Always. He was like, you know what? She didn't mean it that way. He interferes with his mother when she attacks Regina, and he was trying to interfere, uh, intervene in there as well. And then yet again, when his sister was like, can we talk? And he's like, no. <laughs> and then he's like, actually, yes. <laughs> no, he says, go away first. And then when she says, can we talk? He says, sure. That's well, right. Yes. That's right. He declines her, and then he willingly accepts her. Him being a big brother is so real and I and I feel it and I understand it and I see it and the writing and the acting it all is so wonderful and I've I mean I have a bigger brother and I was a bigger brother and it, and it, it I, I just so connected so well with everything that he did in this episode I I teared up multiple times I as I texted earlier I loved Magnus in this episode and I feel like he's my new I always have like a crush in a show and he's it. And I know that's kind of creepy, but I just love <laughs> the way that he responded to every situation he found himself in. I've kind of loved him since episode four. Well, and it makes me look back at those things that I didn't like about him and look at it in a new light yeah. as well. The I, I agree with you guys that, that that hug of his mom really – changed it for me i mean that was such a, that was as powerful as the slap was i think as josh was talking about and it really made me look back at the times that like when he confronts francisca in the forest and is like why were you there what were you trying to do as much less aggressive and much more just desperate please do you know anything about my brother I desperately and Josh, everything that you're bringing up about big brother syndrome of like, I'm supposed to protect him. He was my little brother. And Magnus was the one who brought him along the guilt that he must feel and the responsibility that he must feel for the disappearance of, of Mikkel is, Oh gosh, crushing. Mm. And to know on top of that, he will not get closure. Well, maybe he'll get closure. I guess he might learn, but like he will not. Like we know, Mikkel doesn't come back, yeah, because he grows into into Michael. So we know for certain that he will live with this pain forever. Which which is, I think, adds to my having more sympathy, more empathy for him as a character than I did earlier. Hmm. And we're definitely going to get some more Big Brother guilt later when we talk about Ulrich. <laughs> Well, let's let's wait. Let's wait to to really dig in. Let's switch to Martha. So, mirroring her meeting with Jonas in her dressing room, she now meets Bartosh in her dressing room. Ew. I thought, whoa, 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 wait. 
You said you're feeling empathy for every character and you open with ew when I bring up Bartosh? He bothers me. I know. Okay. I need to bring up something. Have you guys seen the show What About Bob? The movie? Of course. The movie, sorry. Yes. Okay, okay. Um, hello, Ouch. Bill Murray. Really? <laughs> Jen said that with a disdain that matches my own when people make mistakes like that. Sorry, that was way judgmental. <laughs> Listeners, if you haven't seen the movie What About Bob, there's a very specific scene where Bill Murray says, Gimme, gimme, gimme. I need, I need, I need. <laughs> And that is just what Bartosh is screaming throughout this whole thing. It's like, kiss me because I need some attention. He feels like he's Hannah right now. It's just like, I need to insert myself because I am pathetic. I don't know know if this says more about me than it does about the character. But just like with Hannah, I'm feeling so much sympathy for him in this position. He has no way of knowing what the right thing is to do. He is as broken and wanting attention as anybody else. Every time we have seen him, he has, he is the only child that we have not seen interact once with his parent outside of that time where Regina hugged him after they lost Mikkel. Like he seems to have nobody and his best friend bailed on him. He said he would always be there for him. And he bailed on him. And and maybe this is just me and my pathetic past of wanting girls <laughs> to like me. But him so desperately trying to maintain that connection and just like, are you mad at me? Like, did I do something? And not realizing, of course, that this self-centered approach of it's not about you, man. Like, that's what you're not getting is it's not about you, Bartosh. And what I could go back to tell 1986 Tommy is, I was not alive in 1986, <laughs> is it's not about you, man. Focus on the other person. I don't know. It didn't, it didn't leave me with a bad taste in my mouth as much as it did you guys. I think my problem with him is my read on him from episode one was he inserted himself into the Jonas-Martha connection, whatever that was, while Jonas was in a asylum or yeah, you were on team jonas and martha from moment the one. moment one <laughs> waiting for that so it bothers me that he feels like jonas betrayed him for not showing up for that drug whatever he thought it was gonna be and that just seems stupid and petty and immature so yeah he's the one character i don't have empathy for <laughs> I don't disagree with you. And it's also like terrible timing, dude. Right before her big show where she's clearly a star and she's and hopefully you know that she's giving these incredibly emotional monologues constantly. My guess is he doesn't. He's just a teenager, though. Like he's a self-centered teenager. Like, what do you want? That's not an excuse. Not all teenagers are self-centered. So, no. You weren't (laughs) (laughs) self-centered. This just goes on to confirm that Tommy and I would not have been friends in high school. (laughs) Oh, no. We have both grown up a lot. (laughs) Oh, dear. So then she goes on to perform. And it's clear that she's Ariadne. In fact, the play itself seems to be called Ariadne. There's a poster in her dressing room. Mm -hmm. Although I guess that could be just like, this is Ariadne's dressing room. Because we are the richest school in the land. And we have individual dressing rooms for our students. That are the size of like a gymnasium. I know. That's huge. (laughs) It's like a classroom. (laughs) And I think because she's so clearly Ariadne here, I think it makes sense to talk about Jonas again. Because Jonas and the connections between 
Martha as Ariadne, Jonas as Perseus. Jonas is literally following a red thread in the caves, red ink even, on his map from the stranger. Mm. And that says, follow the signal. And I think that it's just appropriate to talk about the metaphorical symbolism and significance of that illusion. I threw, I don't even know if that made sense. That was a lot of English teacher word salad. But the the connection between... I don't know. Jonas as Perseus somehow going to find his metaphorical, literal minotaur, half man, half beast creature that he is going to find. And somehow Martha as the one leading him there. I don't, I don't have fully formed thoughts about that, but that's just kind of what I thought. Yeah, I think that's a great way of articulating it. And the fact that they were running parallel to each other, which is what I love about this show, is just that overlap of everything happening at the same time. Yes. I think that's a great way of putting it. I kind of want to rewind a little bit on Jonas and his story because when he is at the beginning and he's talking about... (laughs) It's funny because I don't even notice when you guys say Jonas and when I say Jonas. Because I feel like you're calling me out every time and I can't say it. I am not at all. I know you're not. I don't even (laughs) notice. It's just I'm repeating what I... I would be if that's that's what it was. (laughs) I know. This is very true. Nope. This is how I talk. (laughs) So she's talking, or he's talking to his mother about, hey, what was dad like when he was younger? Mm. I had a question about this. She's like, I met him at the hospital and he had a broken leg. Right? What is that? She must be misremembering. (laughs) I didn't feel like that. I thought that that was supposed to be a note of how... Over time, I mean, 33 years ago, you're going to remember exactly what was wrong with him? Okay. Or is she just a lying liar? Yes, thank you. Why would she lie about that specific? Okay. You hate Hannah so much. No, no, no. Let me me explain. I feel that there are people who lie to lie. That it's like, okay, I am going to lie right now because I want to lie. And, and I, and I don't have an a, a explanation for this, but I feel like her lying about the rape, it's just her creating her own, her own reality. And I don't know if this, and it might be what you're saying. You might be absolutely right that she is just misremembering. But her, Jen, you seem very excited to talk, so I'm going to let you go. <laughs> yeah, I, I, you look like you need to speak, and so I will. I will be silent now. <laughs> no, I just feel like I want to say that it was the last episode or the episode before that it was very clear we got to see them meet, and for the viewer to have that image fresh in their mind, plus know what the Michael Michael connection is. I feel like that's such an intentional lie, and I only stand by that because everything in the show is so intentional. And I feel like there are choices that are being made that they want the writers, the actors, whatever, the director wants these things to land in such a way that this is just a lie. And I agree. I think it could be a lie to lie that that's just what she does. He had hurt his leg, though. Like, he he did have an injured leg. It wasn't broken. I understand what you're saying. 
I know and I do subtle. think that it was purposeful, but I think it's much more purposeful in the sense of trying to show us how time degrades our memory. And the reason I say that is because of the number of times that we went back to that shot of Mikkel in class 6B or 7B or whatever it was in 1987 yeah. in the school. And I think that that actually moment, speaking of, we talked about it earlier, that reminded me a lot of The Shining, when uh, at least the movie version, mm-hmm. when you zoom yeah. in and you see... uh Jack Nicholson's face in some party celebration from the past. Yeah, that's true. But I absolutely don't read it like that. I absolutely just read it as look at what time does and look at what time does to our memories. And uh, for me, it underscored the ridiculousness of Ulrich storming up to Regina in the hospital and saying, tell me what happened the night that Mads disappeared. Like, what are you talking about? That was 30 years ago, man. But that's another thing where I'm like, if something very traumatic happens, I remember every single detail of what happened that night. Like, I will remember everything. But was the doctor's appointment or the, the, the her meeting her future husband that memorable? I don't know. I can see it both ways. I don't know enough about their marriage, too, at this point to draw too many conclusions, but... I would think it's memorable. <laughs> I just think that's also not true about me. I mean, I remember my, my meeting of my wife. <laughs> my, <laughs> I was going to say my first wife. <laughs> she technically is. I don't yeah. remember what she was wearing. If she had an, I guess I don't think she had an injury, but I wouldn't be willing to like bet a million dollars on it. I get that. And I think that this too, though, goes to like a female perspective that you are probably as a female more likely. Does she remember what you were wearing? She remembers (laughs) things all the time. You're absolutely right. She remembers every aspect of everything. And it is absolutely mind boggling. (laughs) I I second that. (laughs) She will constantly be like, oh, remember this recipe we tried? No. Do you know it was from that book and it had the chives in it? I I believe you. I believe that you were correct. <laughs> anyway, that's actually that's a fair point. Mm. I don't know. I still You guys hate Hannah. I don't hate Hannah yet. I don't like her, but I'm I still want to give her the benefit of the doubt. I feel like I'm usually the cynical one. What is happening it here? It is funny. It feels a little This is different. Weird. I didn't actually fully hate her until this episode, Hmm. which is weird because it should have been the last one, but this one solidified it for me. Well, let's, let's uh, put a little pin on, on Jonas. I just think the last interesting thing to say about him is the thread leads to a hook. I don't even know what to call that. Like a, it's called an Ouroboros. Yeah. We need to talk about the Ouroboros. Because it is a snake eating its own tail, and that is a very significant symbol of. And I, and, and I did a little bit of research on this, but the snake eating its own tail is almost like life, birth, life, and death. That's kind of the, a general idea of that symbol, that it is an eternal cycle. And we've been talking about cycles a lot with this show, and I, I, I feel that that is incredibly significant and also strange who put that there (laughs) well who put any of it there all of that stuff is clearly man-made so he comes up to that door that says sic mundus creatus est which if you don't remember means thus the world was created in latin which is a very for me i'm a nerd i read a lot of fantasy things and spells are always in latin 
so it feels very spell magic-y to me. But that's clearly very... Obviously, that door is man-made. And like the whole tunnel system that he's in after that is like perfectly square, clearly has tool marks. So that's also very clearly man-made compared to the very obvious natural nature of the cave. I think goes right when he is given a path between two roads. So and I don't know if that was the path less traveled. Is that what you're just trying to say? <laughs> Maybe. I don't know if for you that made this connection, but in the very beginning of the episode, Regina asks Alexander to tell her everything is all right. And for whatever reason, that's immediately what my mind went through when he decided to go right. Everything is all right. I don't know. That's oh, probably nothing. That's but... good. I like that. I mean, that's very English history where yeah. we may be reading into things more than we need to, but I like it. <laughs> and then he ends up in 1986 and he meets his mom immediately. So back to the future. Super back to the future. She almost called him Calvin. I could feel it. It was just right. <laughs> it was right, right on there. his underwear. <laughs> if you're from Germany, tell us, do you have Calvin Klein underwear? Thank you. I think they do. <laughs> Let's take a minute and talk about Ulrich. We're talking about Hannah. We're kind of putting pins on a lot of different things. And Ulrich has spent this episode really becoming ever more unhinged. And it's appropriate to talk about him as we reach Martha's story, because while she is giving her, oh my God, amazing monologue, this actress, unbelievable. But while she is giving this monologue, she talks about Perseus descending into the labyrinth and finding half man, half beast. And right when she says half man, half beast, it cuts to a picture of Ulrich, obviously meaning for us to imply that he is somehow descending and getting ever more desperate and upset. And he goes to accuse his dad. He's he's starting to, to reinvestigate Mads' disappearance. Side note, we learn that it's Egon. Egon is uh, the cop Tiedemann's first name. But he immediately goes and he looks at all the, the files. He listens to the interviews. And he immediately accuses his dad because he remembers that his dad was not home. I guess, what did you guys think about his interaction with his mom and dad there? How did it fit in with the relationship that he has with his parents as we know it so far? How did that connect to what you already think about Trant? Like, that's kind of what I wanted to ask you guys. I, this was really interesting. Number one, he basically confronts his dad and asks, where were you? And again, yet again, we have another suspicious character avoiding the question Deflecting. With a non-answer. Yeah, so much deflection. And Ulrich would have none of it. He grabbed him in the face to stop him from deflecting. And I was curious because I forget, and I was hoping you guys remembered because he's, he's, he asks, where were you when Mikkel disappeared? And mom says, he was with me. Is that true? 100% a lie. Y yes, it's a lie. <laughs> okay. Okay. I was making sure because I thought it was as well. But yet again, she is covering... For him. Mm -hmm. And I love, I love how later when he confronts her about that, says, Hey, when I heard the interview, you said that he was with us. He was not. He was with Claudia. And I love that she says, The night that our son disappeared, he was with another woman. And you can see on Ulrich's face that he's like, Oh, I was just the same. 
I was kissing Hannah in the hallway right at that same moment. And, and you could just see it in his face. And I, I love that parallel between the father and the son there. Well, let's keep talking about Ulrich's looks, because that look that you're talking about is super significant. And then he confronts Regina after his mom tells him that Regina was the last one to see him. And that moment where he's so sure and he's like, oh, Regina, you're playing the victim again, just like when you told Egon that I raped Katarina. And she's just like, that's what you thought? And his head tilts and the music, like, so good. like the, the sound of it is fantastic. It's exactly what I just made with my mouth. <laughs> That's and <pretty> good. <laughs> perfect. The oh, the position that he's put in as just a fool, an utter fool in that moment. And he's like, "No, you Hannah told me you went and did this." And Regina just like, "Hannah, Hannah who's been in love with you forever, who would do anything to be with you?" And he goes well, and he yeah. smiles, of course. And yet again, we get the guilt built up upon him because he is already feeling the guilt of, oh, wow, when my son disappeared, I was with another woman. And that he finds out that it was because of his mistreating of her that she asked Mads to walk with her home. And so he yet again feels more guilt. And so we just have Ulrich's guilt just building and building and building. Same and brother guilt that Magnus feel- has. Absolutely. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> we'll find that Magnus is cheating on Francisca later, I guess. <laughs> no. <laughs> that moment, though, when he confronts Hannah, I I guess that's what fuels my Hannah hate. I know we already touched on what she says in that moment. That's so creepy. But there's this idea of deception that just kind of as a human being struck me as, oh man, how easy it is to be deceived by anyone, but especially someone you think you believed was on your side to some extent or cared for you in some way. And just kind of watching him get obliterated in a lot of different ways was kind of devastating in this episode. I mean, let's not overstep. Let's let's not pass by, I mean... That he opens by choking her and slamming her against a wall. I'm not I mean, saying that's, that's okay. <laughs> Let's be clear. <laughs> there's nothing okay about that, but there's no but. It's so funny to me that we open this show with a character. We know from the beginning that he is having an affair and we automatically are almost set up to dislike him. Yeah. To see how slimy he is. And yet somehow this show has made us feel something towards Ulrich. The, the the guilt that he feels is immense. And it's surprising that the show has made us kind of, or at least made me make that turn where I'm, I, I feel bad for him and I root for him. And I want him to kind of get out of this affair. And I want him to kind of restore his family. It's, it's yeah. surprising. Well, and what's crazy is I find myself wanting to defend him also when Katarina finds those numbers in the call and learns that it was Hannah. I immediately want to be like, wait, you don't understand. Like he definitely doesn't feel that way anymore, but it's only been four days. Mikkel's just been missing four days. That's true. Yeah. And I mean, for us, it's actually, 
I feel like we started this like a month ago. And so it's been like a month. Feels like weeks. Yes. <laughs> but for him, it's only been four days. And I, I don't like that impulse in me to defend him because he's definitely the one in the wrong. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I think it's – let's just stick with Auric and talk about his discovery at the end. Do you guys have any specific things to say? I did do some more research. The shirt that he finds in the picture is the shirt that the body is wearing. Mm-hmm. Uh, the 80s boy that they find, it is that same atom energy shirt, which means uh, nuclear energy. And so he is – and we hear the story, of course, of this scar that he has on his chin. And it's – well, now I don't – it's like probably Mads, I want to say now. Like it's 99% Mads. Do we have reason to doubt? Just because this show is this show is the only reason that I would say it's not 100%. But That's I true. also thought it was Mads from the moment I saw him. You did say that, which was shocking to me. I did not think that immediately. I, yeah. I mean, I've been wrong about other <laughs> assumptions, but that one, I'll take my gold star. So yeah, we, don't really have, we don't really have anything to say about this. I mean, it's just kind of – it's the obvious question, Mark. It's the obvious cliffhanger. What happens next? And hopefully the show stays true to form and it immediately answers that question. That's true. That's true. Man, this show. <laughs> Roller coaster. Well, I think there's only really two important things to talk about from here on out. And that is Peter and Trant. And Martha and her monologue and then her conversation with Magnus. I feel like the Peter and Tron thing is really quick. So I just want to start there. Okay. Sure. So they're in the cabin. And then they go into the underground room. It's very bunkery. I don't know if it's a bunker. It looks like a bunker. Well, I noticed in a previous episode, because there's a previous episode, I don't remember which number, but Charlotte goes down there and she she finds that and she noticed that this is a part of her family's bunker. It, it I think that she it's finds on the three. cabin door. Episode three. Yeah, we see, what is it, Doppler? Or yeah, Doppler is her family name. And that is the, on the name of the cabin. Down in that cabin, we see six personen written on the wall in this really old-timey lettering, which means six people. And so I think that this is almost like a nuclear bunker where we can hold six people. Or maybe it's a, well, yeah, I was going to say like a nuclear bomb, but maybe from a fallout, a fallout shelter where, okay, we're next to this nuclear power plant. Maybe this is a place where we can settle. But yeah, they go to that bunker so in the bunker they are waiting specifically for 917 and at exactly 917 the lights flicker they consult a book with a triketra on it which is the symbol that we saw on the stranger's wall which is the symbol we saw on the door that jonas opens and there and that are, is the moment when Jonas opens the door is at editing definitely that time. made it appear that way for sure. There yeah, are some other sure. times that I just wanted to say uh November 7th at 11:08 which would have been 2 days prior. Does that seem to match up when the birds fell? Ooh. I don't, I don't know. know. That's a 
Interesting thought. <laughs> then there was 11.8 at 11.17. Does that seem to match that episode where we talked about when Jonas was like, did you love dad? You're bringing up really deep references <laughs> that we have not, not done been the that research close. for. Absolutely. I would trust you if you said that it looks suspicious. Yes. <laughs> well, then, then there's two dates in the future that we don't have yet, and that is November 9th at 5.24 and November 12th at 7.47. Those were the next two dates in the, cal- in, the, in, the, in the journal that they had that had that symbol on it. Interesting. So – I just wanted to see if you guys knew any more about that. I think that's all that's really there is to say about them. But something, what is happening? What is happening with Peter? Why is Trant in on it? Where is he going all the time? Did he know that Mikkel wouldn't be found? Is Does he know about that? Is that why he was so unsure when he was a part of that search party? That's what I was just thinking. Didn't he? He said something very clear that he wouldn't be found. And I know this whole time Peter's known something, so I'm... Those are the big questions for me. Also, can we just acknowledge it's really bothering me, but in Back to the Future, isn't November like 5th the date that Doc Brown discovers time travel? November 5th, 1955. You're totally right. Just saying. Okay, so then let's go back to Martha because she gives her speech, her monologue, and the whole play is really intense. Again, I will say, what a high school production. My, my. (laughs) (laughs) But I think the most significant thing that she says is she goes through and she clearly gives the thread to whoever the Perseus character is. And then she's alone at the end and she takes off her white dress and reveals the black dress underneath. Symbolic of dying, sadness, emptiness, insert symbolism here. And she says the following. I am alone. No king's daughter, no husband's wife, no brother's sister. We all die alike, no matter into which house we are born, no matter which gown we wear, whether we grace the earth briefly or for a long time. I alone tie my bonds. Whether I have extended hands or slapped them, we all face the same end. Those above have long forgotten us. They do not judge us. In death, I am alone, and my only judge is me. It's interesting reading that after seeing so much religious symbolism in this show with the character names, with the reference to biblical analogies, how in this play, there seems to be this lack of (sighs) celestial godlike intervention where it's just like, it's just me. Is there a God almost? Well, and this is a little lit 101-y, but it comes right back to existentialism for me and the lack of any sort of divine being controlling or providing truth or answers or knowledge, giving us this incredible freedom outside of the ability of this super powerful, omnipresent, omni, etc. being. But it also provides this same level of isolation, of aloneness, of anxiety, and how there is no other judge. And in some sense, that's great. I get to be the one who decides if I lived a good life. But on the other hand, that means, oh, there is no cosmic justice. There is no ultimate reason. It's just me. Mm. And that tension is so clear in this monologue that she gives. 
I think the most striking thing in this scene was just when she said no brother, sister, I feel like there was a a moment of a shot on Katarina's face and then the kind of back and forth between them of just the emotional breakdown unfolding in that moment was gutting to me. And her running up mm-hmm. to comfort her daughter and everybody in the audience being like, oh, is this not part yeah. of what is? I was wondering, Tommy, you've been in so many plays in your entire life. Have you ever, ever had something this kind of, because as this was happening, I was almost watching the show going like, my immersion. Oh, no. <laughs> like, what's going on with this play? What is real? And I'm wondering if you've ever seen something this drastic in a play where it's just kind of everything breaks down because there's so much suspension of disbelief when you're watching a play. I'm just talking about something so disruptive where (laughs) just everything is gone. The play is done, basically. You're asking me if I've ever been in a play where we've just decided to stop doing it? Yeah. (laughs) Basically, have you ever seen something this disruptive? Certainly not. I mean, I've been in plays where things go wrong, where we have, you know, the music running off of tracks and the track breaks or whatever, and we have to figure out either how to do it without a track or we roll it back. Like, that's definitely happened before. But I have never... No, I've never been in a show where a character was so emotionally affected by their personal life that they were actually breaking down sobbing on stage to the point where they needed true, real comfort. As a drama teacher, I would say bravo on accessing personal emotions to perform well. True. That's the thing, though, is whenever there's any sort of performance in a piece of media that I'm watching. It just only makes me think about the acting in the show. And again, in this show, though, it's almost appropriate. And again, it it places me in the position of the divine being who sees all of time and all of space together. Because I get to know that, you know, 1986 Hannah was in love with Auric. And I get to see through the normal narrative walls, in a sense, as a viewer of this show in particular. So even though there is performance in this show, which makes you think about the actors performing in Dark, it almost makes it even more appropriate because throughout the show, I have been placed as this kind of divine being, if you will. Hmm. There's one more thing I want to talk about, and it's going back to Katarina. And we talked about how earlier she confronted her children and Marta called her blind. I loved how later when Katerina calls that phone number for the radio show and she says herself, we are all blind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she really mirrors her daughter's words. And, I, and, it, and it, to me, it feels like that is almost her acceptance of this fact that her son is gone. Mm. And I, I noticed that connection between those two uses of the word blind. And, and I think that that, I mean, it connects to Martha there, but gosh. Which of course prompts the taunting by Regina later of, if you hate this town so much, why don't you just leave? Oh gosh. I didn't know who to feel bad for in that scene. 
I thought her reaction was so strange, though, to just start beating up on her as a full-grown woman. (laughs) Maybe in their teenage years, they tussled like that, but... Well, and there's definitely history that we don't know. Right. But But Regina (laughs) was so just... Just taking it. <laughs> poisonous. Well, uh, I have some things I want to say. My, my Lit 101 is is kind of a double barrel. So I want to talk about this again a little bit later. Okay. Okay. But man, that was just, I, I, I didn't, it didn't feel like any of the characters were out of line in terms of their motivations, but it was just surprising. It was like, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. But wow, this is intense. That sort of childish toddler level discourse about the state of a town that you live in and saying, if you hate it so much, why don't you just leave? (laughs) Which is weird to me. I like that's a thread since I don't know which episode, but kind of the deal with Ulrich, like, why have you never left? Why don't these people leave? Like, what's the deal with Wyndon? You don't seem to love it. (laughs) I mean, maybe they're not able to. That's what I'm wondering. Yes. What's the secret? Yeah, I, uh, just in terms of, I think the time travel changes everything because maybe like they're literally not able to, like maybe they are not able to make the choice to leave right. because other people have already made different choices. Ulrich and Katarina could not leave Winden because we know that Mikkel had to exist and go back into the past to marry Hannah and have Jonas. That That timeline already existed. So they are kept in bounds. I know this goes back to a conversation we were having <laughs> earlier, but I don't know. I think that they might not be able to make the choice to leave because time has trapped them in a sense. Interesting. It's possible. So this is the moment everybody has been waiting for is when school is in session and we get to lit 101 where we stand in front of the class, we get behind the podium, we light our pipes with non Tobacco. I don't know how to how to finish that. And we talk about the themes, motifs, images, symbols, allusions, connections to other texts, uh, anything that you might remember from your third period English class. And I will begin because I believe Josh and Jens go together somewhat. So for this Lit 101, I just kind of wanted to get back to the core of English analysis, which is looking at themes as they build throughout a text. And again, when I say text, I'm just talking about this episode. And I saw two major themes building. And the first theme was about how pain, sadness, and anger translate into a desire to hurt others. So with every character that is experiencing pain and anger, you see it in terms of they lash out and attack another person. Katarina attacks Martha and says, this is just not about you for once. How about that, Martha? And Martha lashes right back with Mikkel's dad, knowing that that will hurt her. When Regina is really hurt about her own struggle with cancer, she lashes out at Ulrich. She lashes out at Katerina, actively trying to hurt them, as you said, Josh. And I just thought it was interesting how this episode specifically focused on how people turn their pain into pain for others. So that was kind of the first major theme that I noticed. And the second one is related again to uh, the existential themes that I brought up before, specifically in terms of the inability to communicate and the inability to really ever know somebody. And that 
kind of runs true through a lot of existential thinkers, including some that I've mentioned before, but I'll just name them again here. You have, uh, you know, Jean-Paul Sartre, you have Tom Stoppard, you have uh, Hegel, you have Heidegger, all of these different thinkers that kind of talk about how it's difficult to get to know another person. And in this episode, it really bears true. And, you know, really the question is, do we ever really know who somebody is? Hannah clearly never really knew who Michael was. And one of the things that she says to Jonas is, you never knew when he was being serious or not. You never knew when to take him seriously. And uh, Diana, who lied to the Egon Tiedemann, the police officer, because she had her own ulterior motive in not wanting to air her dirty laundry about being cheated on in public in a public record. You have additionally on top of that, Martha at the very end of the episode talks to Magnus and says, you know what I find weird? You don't actually know your parents, what they were like as kids or teenagers. You're family, but you don't really know anything about each other. And just this constant coming back to this theme of you think you know somebody, you think you know how somebody thinks, what they act like, but you never really are sure. Ulrich finds that out in this episode. He thought that he knew Hannah and he learns new information about her. And I think this goes back to that man and beast connection that they were making with the Minotaur, half beast, half man, mm. going back to a major theme throughout a lot of texts that I'm sure that you guys will know about the duality of man and how humankind is so fickle and how we have this rational civilized side of us and this savage uncivilized side of us. And so those are just kind of the themes that I saw building throughout this episode. I don't really have a big connection to another thing, but I just was really impressed about how every single character story seemed to work toward either one or the other of those themes. I love that you did that. <laughs> yeah. It's funny to me how we've, I think we've mentioned this before, how we're three very different teachers and we've always wanted to witness everyone else's teaching and this is we are getting to witness that yeah so so fun (laughs) that's exactly what i was thinking i realized i'm like this is probably what tommy talks about in his classroom and i love that you explored just the relational connections because that's what i love to talk about in literature is the way characters react to one another, the things that influence their actions. And that was just fun to hear. One other thought that I had, and this could be way off as many things that I say are way off. (laughs) Um, But do you have another Wikipedia number? Is that what you're going to talk about? (laughs) Oh, you'll see. No, actually. No. And I'm, I'm, I'm not transitioning to mine as well right now as, as well. So the idea of existentialism. I'm wondering, in terms of culture, the how related that is to German culture. Hmm. And I, and, and I, I have a lot of European relatives, and I do kind of get that sense, that existential sense of like, okay, kind of, <laughs> and this is being really dismissive. It's almost like nothing matters, so that what you do truly does matter in a way um and and i i think that that could be and and you mentioned a lot of 
existential philosophers just now, and I was like, those sound like German philosophers, mm -hmm. and I don't know, because I don't know philosophy all that well. But I think that that might be something to mine later is just, okay, how much is this cultural? And I, and I feel that there is so – this show – and I don't know Germany. I've never been – actually, no, that's not true. I have been to Germany. But <laughs> I don't know German culture that that well. But I, I feel it, it, this show feels very German. And, and I don't – and I say that, but I don't exactly know what I mean. <laughs> um, but I feel like the creators of this show are, are really being representative of their culture in a way. But mm -hmm. I don't know. It's just a thought. So I have a really weird concept, and I've – feel like I, that's all I've been bringing is weird concepts to Lit 101. And this Lit 101 topic isn't really Lit 101 in any way. But I want to talk about diegetic sound. I'm so strapped in and on board for this. <laughs> <laughs> you say that a lot when I bring up my random topics. I think it just relates to what we said before about getting to see each other teach. Oh, that's true. That's true. Because this isn't really, this has, I think, zero to do with literature and it has much more to do with film. But there's a concept of diegetic sound and non-diegetic sound. And as a quick kind of background, diegetic sound is the sound in a show or movie that is a part of that show. And we have seen a lot of diegetic music, especially, I believe it was episode three where we go back to the 80s. And we are just kind of just, we get every clue because everyone is listening to music from the 80s when we are in the 80s. All the music that we hear is diegetic music because it is happening for the characters and they are hearing it. Now... In film and in TV and in other mediums, there is also non-diegetic sound and non-diegetic music. That is music that is added later. So, for example, any score in a film, that's not happening. There isn't people in the background with cellos and violins kind of adding drama to this Just experience. Just off screen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's not happening. And... We get quite a lot of that in this show as well. And, and another concept with that non-diegetic sound is narration. So in certain shows, when you have a narrator, that is non-diegetic. That is not happening at the time. And the music in this show, I'm kind of getting off track here, but non-diegetic music is often used specifically for we are trying to set a specific mood. And I have noticed that at the end of most episodes, if not all, I haven't gone back to look, but there is usually a song that ends the episode that is a montage, and we discussed how it's usually a song in English, and that montage is really doing such a good job of setting the tone for that whole entire scene. But the reason why I bring up non-diegetic and diegetic sound slash music is because I feel that this show, what it has done it, is it has blurred the lines between those two concepts. Oftentimes we get, as I mentioned, music 
that is happening in the scene. And oftentimes you get music that is not in the scene at all. But beyond that, I specifically want to talk about sound. And I've been really, I, I don't know why, but I've been so focused on sound when I've been watching this show for the second time. I've been noticing sound effects and musical cues and just how much bass is in the show. It's ridiculous. But what really made me think about this was the caves roaring. Because at the beginning of this show, when we first see the wind in caves, we get that roar. And we're like, oh, that's weird. Why did they add that weird, unusual sound effect? Because oftentimes shows will do that. They will add a sound effect to add an effect. You have someone fall over and you have like a banana slip noise. And that is almost what that, that cave, the roar of the cave sounded like. But later on, we do find out, wait a minute, the caves do roar. When Jonas goes into the caves, when he opens up that sick uh, Mundus Creatus Est door, we get that wind and we get that roar. And when we have at the beginning of this episode, Regina strapped to that tree, we are not really sure the noise that she is hearing. Is that truly what she is hearing or is that in her mind? There's another concept, which is called internal diegetic sound, which is, are we hearing what this main character is hearing right now? And that was what I thought when I heard Regina when she was in the beginning of the episode hearing that roar of the cave. Is this truly the cave roaring or is this just something that she's hearing? And at the end of this episode, when we have Ulrich looking down at Mads, his baby brother, still in his 80s garb and in his 80s <laughs> existence, he hears his mother within his voice saying like, oh, he hurt his chin. He had the, the cut on his chin. And this show really has blurred those lines so that, and, and this may be me, and I'm not sure if you guys feel this way, but because of that, I feel that the music in the show is so much more impactful because it almost feels real. Earlier in the episode, when Jonas is going through the door, we have the lights flickering. And we have the sound, the actual foley of the, the lights kind of going on and off. But on top of that layered, we have the orchestra making a similar sound that mirrors that. And, and you've probably heard this before in any scary movie where you have that little like bleep, 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 that the plinking of the strings that the orchestra does to make it sound creepy. But they're doing that exact same concept as well. And as I've gone through this show the second time, I really feel that the sound design in the show is brilliant and it makes you so incredibly immersed. And yes, this is kind of blurring the lines with Lit 101. This is more Film 101, but I feel that it is really applicable and I'm definitely going to be bringing it up bringing it up more as we go <laughs> throughout the show. Yeah, no, I don't think that Lit 101 necessarily means English specifically. I think it's just analysis. It's our analysis portion. And yeah. film style analysis is certainly appropriate when we're watching a TV show together. I love that. I should trust you more, Josh, when you were like, it connects. I I love that information. You schooled me well. <laughs> yeah, music. So I think that's one of the most striking elements of this show as a whole. It's what makes me feel so much, whether it's fear or sadness or despair or 
whatever. Um, It's because of the music to a large degree. And I don't have anything particularly revolutionary to add. It's just the, and I've talked about a song before, um, particularly the ones that we hear in English. But at the end, when we do see that montage, we hear this song called Enter One by Sol Seppi. I think that's how you say it. She's one of those um, solo artists that takes on a different name, like Bon Iver or I think Iron and Wine, something like that. I knew this song because I often will, if I don't know, I'll Shazam whatever song I'm hearing so I can make sure I have it to add to my mood playlist whatever that mood it fits. And Enter One, I actually knew from The Good Wife many moons ago. I forget the scene that they chose, but I'm interested to see what scene it kind of narrates because this scene, or the scenes that we see unfold at the end of this episode is Magnus, Martha, and Katerina walking home into their house holding hands. This is kind of the moment when Jonah time travels. Jonas, whoa, sorry. And then this is also, I believe in the scope of this song is when Hannah and her father pull up and encounter Jonas, like leading up to that moment, which is the most interesting part of the time travel aspect, but that's not important for this. What I started thinking about was the lyrics themselves to the song, and I'm just going to read a couple of lines from it. Um, Josh, you were talking about last week how the Agnes Obel song was used jokingly because she references dark. And this Mm -hmm. song references light. It says, into the light, into the unknown, like a thousand, thousands of lanterns glowing with grace and glorious silence descending through space. And I like this contrast of light to unknown, thousands of lanterns glowing with grace glorious silence descending through space. There's this like shift from light and darkness and light and darkness. And then later she sings into the unknown. I want to be shameless entering a light welcome. And it says in Shallah, inshallah, which is Arabic for if God wills, I think particularly if Allah wills, but I'm not delving too much into that meaning. Fear not this light, we are on this light divine, so come, we move as one. Amazing grace is pouring down, fear not this light. And it ends with welcome, enter one. And that was just a really perfect song for this moment when Jonas enters a different time. And Martha, Magnus, and mom kind of enter into this, I want to almost say new dynamic to their relationship, right? Kind of going back to what you were saying is we don't know our parents. Like this is something totally new and figuring out this terrain as we go, but it's coupled with darkness and light. They can't really coexist, but they contrast with one another. And then it just kind of made me think back to some scenes in the show that show that contrast. And I'm not saying it means anything, but the scene prior that stood out to me that we've already talked about is when Martha takes off her white dress and then it's all black. And 
it's just kind of like there's this battle going on, and I don't know how to define it, and that can get very biblical, obviously, in its own way of evil versus goodness, and there's not any clarity to it other than I keep sitting here in awe of every single thing in the show feels so intentional. And I don't think I'll fully understand it until I get the whole picture. And then I watch it again and I say, okay, now I see how this all connects. But right now it's just kind of a fun puzzle, I guess, to kind of put together and say that means something. (laughs) This song is important. It's not without meaning. One thing that I noticed with this song, there's a line that says, I want to be shameless like the sun. Mm -hmm. And in that moment is when Alexander hugs his wife, Regina, uh, after finding the the, the whole cancer situation. And to me, that spoke to this whole idea that we cannot keep things hidden. These things need to come to light. Mm -hmm. And... It was so sad to me watching her not wanting to be shameless like the son, not wanting to be open to her own husband about her own illness. And she wanted to keep that in the dark. Yeah. And yeah, I I looked up the lyrics to this song as well. Because every, every time they, every time the, the episode ends with this amazing song, with such poignant lyrics that match so perfectly. And like you just said, everything just seems so purposeful and so masterful in its creation. It's it's amazing. It's always really interesting to me whenever an artist, by which I mean an author, a filmmaker, whatever, chooses to also include an existing piece of art mm-hmm. in what they have created themselves and why that is. I love that you've looked at that. That's amazing. I didn't even consider doing that. (laughs) (laughs) All right, really quickly, let's get through our still in the dark segment where we talk about questions that are still agonizingly out of reach by the end of the episode. What are some of the major questions for you guys? I only have one question, and that is the booklet and how on earth Trant and Peter know each other. Like, I, I understand that they know each other, but... There is so much there. We need to know what they are doing, what they know, and please tell us, show, very soon. (laughs) I'm just going to echo that because my question that's existed for a while is, what the heck is the deal with Peter? So please enlighten me more. I feel like we've only gotten small glimpses, and the details that we've got don't have anything to do with what I actually want to know. So, (laughs) Yeah, for me, my newest question is... What if Jonas went left? Uh. <laughs> oh, yeah. What would have happened if he went left instead of right? Would he have gone into the future? Oh. Would he have gone even farther into the past? Or would he have died? Just, just death. <laughs> That's just wrong choice. That's a good question. Can you go into the future, too? Well, I mean, if time travel's on the table... I feel like everything's existed in 1986 so far, so I don't know. Is it just one year? (laughs) The funny thing about this show is that when I was watching it, it was in the future. Because the current timeline of the characters is 2019. And I believe when I was watching it, it was 2018. 
That's true. That was an early question for me. It's like, why set it such an arbitrarily small amount of time in the future? Yeah. Hmm. So weird. I I don't know. One thing about questions just in general is that I feel like we are getting some answers. Yeah. But we are getting so many more questions. <laughs> I love that, though. We need to get some answers <laughs> soon. Well, what a wonderful segue for me. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening to the show. We love this show a lot, obviously, as we go on for well over an hour at this point. And hopefully you love hearing us talk about it. We will see you next time for Season 1, Episode 7, Crossroads. How many times will Jonas endanger the space-time continuum? Will we find out the name of the German craft supply store that has all of the red thread? Who else will be slapped? Find out next time on Lit After Dark. And remember, keep it lit. If you like this podcast, please give us a review and a five-star rating on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. We may be reading some more reviews out in the future. If you'd like, you can email us at litafterdarkpod at gmail.com with questions or comments. That's L-I-T-A-F-T-E-R-D-A-R-K pod at gmail.com. You could follow us on Instagram and Twitter at litafterdarkpod. Thank you to Luke Van for our theme song. You can follow his work on YouTube. That's Luke Van with two N's.